plans for my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. All right, guys, you are locked on Falcons. I am your host, Aaron Freeman, and today is the All-22 Review of the Falcons' Week 6 loss against the Miami Dolphins. You are locked on Falcons, your daily podcast on the Atlanta Falcons. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Okay, guys, as usual on this show, we are giving away a free Pro Football Focus Edge account. I Because this one will be a long one, I think I should let you guys know first and foremost what you can do to win that Pro Football Focus Edge account. You can win it by submitting a review of the Locked On Falcons podcast on iTunes Five stars, include your Twitter handle in that review, and you will be entered into winning a free Pro Football Focus Edge account at the end of each week. One winner per show on the Locked On Podcast Network will be able to eligible to win that account. What do you get with a Pro Football Focus Edge account? Well, you get all the great Pro Football Focus stats that you have now come to enjoy. That includes player grades, snap counts, position rankings, fantasy projections, a lot of tools and charts that help you out with your fantasy. And I know I'm a person that needs all the help with my fantasy team. Uh, starting to turn my season around. Thanks a lot to Pro Football Focus. Um, you also get their draft articles and draft coverage and all that sort of stuff. With that, it's a $40 value. If you do not win the raffle to get the Pro Football Focus Edge account, you can still check out all the great Pro Football Focus content on the Locked On Podcast Network, you can check out Jeff Ratcliffe, the director of fantasy for Pro Football Focus on Locked On Fantasy with Vinny Iyer every Thursday. You can also check out the day before Mike Renner, friend of this podcast on Locked On NFL with Matt Williamson each and every Wednesday. So we're going to be answering questions and pertaining to the All-22 today. Um, how do you submit your questions? If you're listening to the show for the first time, you're you're probably wondering, wait, how do I get these questions? Well, of course, you submit them in a variety of ways. A lot of people submitted them via Facebook at our Locked on Falcons uh, fan page. Give us a like while you're there. Also, a lot of Twitter questions. They sent those Twitter questions to both my personal account, which is Falcfans, and also the show's Twitter account, which is Locked on Falcons. That's the easiest way uh to get your questions answered on this podcast because i know it's podcast related if you send the locked on falcons there's other avenues in which you can provide your feedback that includes email which is locked on falcons at mail.com you also can leave a comment on audioboom.com or falcfans.com um, where the show is posted daily as well to get your provide your feedback and of course we're always looking at the feedback provided on iTunes. And I, when I say we, I mean the royal we because it's me and my ego that run this show. So that's how you guys submit these questions. I will be focused on answering these questions. This is going to be a little bit 
of a long one because we got a lot of great questions and, and that tends to happen when the Falcons have a frustrating game that sort of catches people by surprise. And, uh, you know, some of these questions I'll be a little bit shorter with than I probably should. And some of these questions I will be a little bit more longer winded with. Them. So, um, you know, let's get that business out of the, out of the way. And, uh, also I, I do want to, you know, as a disclaimer, if you happen to be one of the Falcon fans that hates Kyle Shanahan still and, and, and hate hearing praise of Kyle Shanahan, you're probably not going to enjoy this episode because we're going to talk a lot about the good things that Kyle Shanahan did. We know some of the negative things that he did, all two of them in the Super Bowl. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk quite a bit about you know how good Shanahan was at doing his job, and we're not going to necessarily say the same things about Steve Sarkeesian. I want people to understand I'm not an anti-Steve Sarkeesian guy. I don't think he's doing a poor job. But I, I don't, you know, there are some differences, and, and those differences are, I think, readily apparent when you watch the team play the last couple of weeks. So, uh, without further ado, let's get into it. First question comes from Young Zach at Young Zach on Twitter. He asks, I know you don't really buy into the whole brotherhood message, but do you think that the message is fading with the team? Ooh, um, I, I think this, you know, I'm I'm a believer that that type of stuff resonates when you're winning and not so much when you're losing. As you said, I, I never really bought into the whole brotherhood thing and the reason that you know we were successful last year because of the brotherhood, which I sort of take as sort of locker room chemistry and camaraderie and, and the, you know the team and effort and all that sort of stuff that comes with it. Um, you know, and that's part of the reason why, you know, I'm a bigger fan of the Rise Up hashtag than the In Brotherhood hashtag. But that, that's a conversation for another day. You know, I think success on the football field happens because players are playing well and coaches are putting those players in a position to play well. And I think that's the reason why the team isn't necessarily having the same sort of success right now. Um, so I don't necessarily, I wouldn't, yeah. So I guess to answer your question, I wouldn't necessarily credit the brotherhood stuff for the success the team had, nor would I credit it for the struggles that it's having. Um, you know, I think more, if I was going to speculate, which is everything I do on this podcast, but I would say it's, I think some of their struggles has more to do with, you know, some of the coaching stuff that we, we, we have talked about and certainly we'll talk about as this episode continues but I also think it's some of it is sort of complacency a little bit to a certain extent with some of the young guys not necessarily um, putting in all the effort that I think they should because there's sort of a little bit of entitlement when you know when you have early success and one of the things that you constantly hear from football players, particularly guys that go to teams that are successful right off the bat and, and you know, make the playoffs or go to the Super Bowl their rookie years and be like, oh yeah, we, we're going to do this every year. And then they proceed to not go back to the playoffs for six years. And then they then they realize, you know, as as those things wear on and like, oh, you actually have to go to work every day and every year and every month and, you know, all that sort of stuff to really find that success. And I think maybe that's an issue. But again, that's that's purely speculative, but there's no real evidence for me to the point that is, and you know, you know how I'm, I'm a guy that likes to believe in evidence. So that's that's one thing to you know, if you if you want to go with that narrative, maybe that's one way of doing it. We've got a lot more questions, and we're going to talk quite a bit more about the All Twenty Two. But one of the reasons why you like watching the All Twenty Two is because it gives you all the angles, 
And another way of getting all the angles and seeing, you know, the end zone angle and the sideline angle and being able to watch every route and, and, and play is being in the stadium itself. And how do you get in the stadium? Well, you got to buy a ticket. And when you want to buy a ticket, there's no better place to go than SeatGeek because SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to those live events like football games. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps because SeatGeek helps you find those best seats at those best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team, even when they're struggling, or your favorite musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for that great value. I have SeatGeek on my phone. It's by far the easiest way I've found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats. SeatGeek helped me find seats to the upcoming Pitt-Duke game here in Durham, North Carolina, where I currently reside, where I get to see my glorious alma mater get destroyed by the Duke Blue Devils in a football game. Not basketball, but a football game. So that's going to be fun. I'm going to be in a great mood on Saturday, guys. But that being said, SeatGeek is designed to make my ticket buying experience easier than ever. Because SeatGeek saves me time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find those amazing deals. And to get the most bang for my buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help me identify the best seats that fit my budget. Plus, every purchase from SeatGeek is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app and finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And best of all, guys, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app, enter promo code L-O-N-F-L. That's promo code L-O-N-F-L for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. And now, insurance-minded speeches from GEICO. Hardship. My grandmother would go through it every month to pay her insurance bill. First, she would handwrite a paper check, in cursive. Then, using her own tongue, she would wet a stamp for an envelope. Today, however, we need not weary our hands and tongues. Today, we can pay our GEICO bill with the GEICO app. Away with hardship, in with bill pay on the GEICO app. Thank you. Okay, back to the questions. Our next question comes from Christian at CVicNair9. Oh, that's a cool name. I like that. Um, if that's a Michael Vick and Steve McNair reference, I like that. Um, his question is, how do you evaluate Matt's performance in this game? Did, you look, did he look more confident in the pocket? How did linebackers play relate to Dolphins' rushing success? Well, um, first, I, I need to say that any criticism that I say at Matt Ryan is nitpicking. Um, when, when I'm being critical of Matt Ryan, it's really amounting to at most 10, for, 10 to 15 percent of the plays. Um, so I want to say that first and foremost before anybody overreacts. But uh, I think there were times where he left some throws on the field, left some yards on the field. Um, because I think he was kind of locked on Julio Jones at a the time. There was, in the opening play, they ran play action. Toy Lola was open deep on a on a corner route, could have been a 20-yard play. It looked like Matt was sort of locked on Julio on the intermediate route, uh, wound up because Julio wasn't open, wound up checking it down to Hooper on the five-yard route for a five-yard gain. You know, in those rollouts like that, you're you're reading high to low. 
And so the first read should have been Toilolo, in, in my opinion, but it, it didn't seem like Matt saw him or for whatever reason, he didn't pull the trigger on that. Um, so I, I think there was, you know, there was a couple of downfield throws that I think he missed in the game later on that where his, he didn't do a great job resetting his feet. And I think that's been an issue that he's been dealing with all throughout this year. Um, so, I mean, that was, that was the main thing. Those are the main knocks against Matt Ryan. Again, a couple of nitpicks here, or there three or four plays, three or four throws or three or four reads that I think he might went back. Um, as for the linebackers play, most of my issues with the Falcons' run defense stem from the linebackers, particularly my favorite linebacker, Deion Jones. I know people are going to construe me as hating on Deion Jones. And look, at this point in time, I'm going to stop running away from that. You know, if, if this is hating on Deion Jones, then I'm, I'm just going to be a hater because at this point. Um, but like, you know, I just watch the film and I get disgusted. Yeah, <laughs> I get disgusted with sort of how undisciplined and unphysical he is at times. Um, poor technique, poor leverage. You, you see it from time to time. You see him do a good job with it. But it's like, to me, at least in my opinion, that for every good snap he has as a run defender, there's like three or four bad snaps that he has as a run defender. Um, so, like, I'm not going to sit here and be like, Deion Jones is the reason why the Falcons' run defense is bad or was bad. But it's one of those things where... I feel like there's a correlation between the Falcons run defense being poor the last year uh, plus, and, you know, it's been the, the time where Deion Jones has been the middle linebacker, you know, that, that may sound harsh, but I like, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, I, I, you know, right now at this point with Deion Jones, he's going to be my Vic Beasley this year. He's going to be the guy that I'm, going to repeatedly label as overrated and be overly critical on this podcast when the rest of the world is lauding him and, and, and saying, singing his praises. Um, you know, he made a nice interception in this game, but I'm really referring to the second one that was discounted. The first one, he got beat and should have been a touchdown, but Cutler threw a bad pass on that play. But, you know, because Dion, you know, because he was three yards behind the receiver, he was in the right spot at the right time. Later on in the game, they ran basically the same play, and he gave up a touchdown to Kenny Stills. I know he's a linebacker; he's not. He shouldn't be expected to cover wide receivers like Kenny Stills. I get that, but um, you know, I I don't know. It just it's one of those things where it's just like watching him play is very frustrating to me because I think he has the potential to be better, but he needs to do a better job. But I, I'm. I, I will have more to say on Deion Jones as this, as this show wears on, and I'm sure as this season wears on. So it is what it is. But let's move on to the next question. Evan Birchfield asks, can you review the lack of Julio targets on the crucial final drive? Also on the final play where Ryan made a great throw, uh, but a risky one, were there other options? Uh, Julio had a big catch right before the two-minute warning. That was a, you know, a, a classic Julio play where he really wasn't open it was a small window Matt Ryan put the ball in the spot on a on a deep out and uh, Julio made the play um, but for the most part the reason why Julio wasn't targeted on that last drive because he wasn't really open and that was really an issue throughout the game like I don't think Julio was creating a, a ton of separation I don't think Julio's really created a ton of separation this entire year I think a lot of that is owed to injuries um, that have been a little bit more nagging as we often say on this show Julio is a Ferrari Julio is constantly hurt and it means the maintenance fees on him are pretty high. Um, 
But uh, again, I don't want anybody to to make that sound like a knock on Julio because you know Julio doesn't need to create a lot of separation because he's Julio Jones, and, and there are times when he's open when he's not open. Um, but like, yeah, I, I you know I think with the whole Julio not getting the ball, I don't think that was as big an issue in this game as people have made it out to be. Um, I think it's a something that people can sort of hang their hat on to a certain, I don't think it's really Julio not getting touches. I think it's how the team uses, and there's going to be a question later on where I'll get more into specifics of that. Um, But like, for example, like one of the bread and butter plays of the team last year, and we saw a little bit of this in the preseason, and maybe we saw it in like week two, I can't recall. I think there was plays like this in the Packers game, but like you would often see the Falcons run play action and then they'd have Julio pull that deep, that deep cross or that deep over route and hit him for like a 25 yard gain. And you're not really seeing that, you know, I don't think I saw that once in the Miami game. I don't think I saw that once against the Buffalo bills either. Um, So it, it, you know, those types of plays, I think you need to find ways to get Julio involved down the field as opposed to just feeding him the ball. I think that's that's more problematic than just trying to force him the ball. And I think, as I said earlier in pertaining to Matt Ryan, I think some of the times he's looking for Julio on plays and, and leaving other th- throws and open receivers um, because he's looking for Julio on, on some of the shorter stuff. But it's more a systemic issue, I guess. Um, as for the final play... There was an option in the flat, a check down the Freeman that he could have thrown. I know I said that, you know, on Sunday I thought Matt Ryan was being greedy. You know, I'll back away from that. Like, it, watching it over and over again, like, any, there's really no fault in that play other than maybe Hooper not attacking the ball as well as he should. But Tankersley made a great play. So, like, that's more of it anyway. Um, you know, Matt Ryan's in a little bit of a dilemma. It's a catch-22 with him because, like, his best strength is kind of being a game manager, which I know is a little bit of a pejorative term that's often used at quarterbacks and playing sort of that conservative style. And but like, yeah, the reason why Matt Ryan is a great quarterback, if you're gonna if you're gonna use that label on him, is because he's really smart and really decisive and makes good decisions, not because he's really this physically gifted thrower. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why he wasn't beloved as a prospect coming out. Why? Miami passed on him with the number one pick. And I think it's one of the reasons why other people sort of throw him under the bus and, 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 and say he's not that great because he's not as gifted a thrower, as you might say, as, as some of the other high higher profile quarterbacks around the league. But like, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like when he plays that sort of conservative game manager, which is more to his strengths, it sort of puts a ceiling on how good the offense can be because if they're not, they're not really going to take risk, and, and you know, without risk, there is no reward. But at the same time, when he's trying to be a little bit more aggressive and be a little bit more of a gunslinger, that's not really his game. So it also sort of, he's not going to do it as well as other sort of top end starters, like a like a Stafford or like a Russell Wilson or like an Aaron Rodgers or somebody like that. So like, it's it's sort of a no win situation for Matt Ryan. So he's kind of stuck in this sort of medium land. Where, you know, when, when it's working, when it's clicking like it was last year, it's it's great. But you really can't necessarily expect that every single week. So, you know, he's a good quarterback. He's way more good than bad with him. So, you know, that's why for the most part I'm always like I'd rather him be aggressive because 
I basically watched him for seven years never be aggressive, um, except for when he would make boneheaded decisions and, and throw a pick into double coverage in the fourth quarter. But, you know, those were few and far between. But anyway, um, next question comes from Aaron Burke Lumley. He asks, over the last few weeks, the Falcons have not been a quote-unquote good team, especially considering who they lost to two home games in a row. How much do you think that is correctable, such as limiting penalties, or is this just who they are, a middling team who can only dominate offensively against lesser defenses? After the last two weeks, I think it's probably best to erase all expectations and just wait and see what this team becomes. At least there's one team in Georgia who's dominating. Cough. Bulldogs. Cough. Um, you know, I, I can't speak to the Bulldogs. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's a, a good strategy, Aaron. Patience. But, you know, telling fans to be patient is, is not necessarily, <laughs> you know, it's like it's might as well be telling a wall to be, you know, to move faster. It, it just It's just not going to work. But, um, you know, I, I think the Falcons are a good team. I think much of their issues are somewhat correctable. I think the question is whether or not they're going to correct them. Um, but I think, you know, if we're talking about the main issue that they're dealing with, I don't. I think their problem is they're not really dictating the terms of the game to their opponents like they were last year. Um, outside of the Packers game, outside of the Lions game, to a lesser extent, I feel like this team is doing is not, is basically letting the other teams dictate how the game is going to go, and and that you know by definition sort of makes you more of a middling team. You know, I remember earlier this season. And maybe people have sort of changed their tune given now that the Falcons are three and two. But I remember earlier this season people would be saying things like, Oh yeah, the Falcons controlled the Bears game and, and whatnot. And I was like, No, they didn't. That game went exactly how the Bears wanted it to go. Um, you know, let's not forget that the you know, without a, a couple of drops at the end of the game, that game would have went exactly how the Bears wanted to go with a win. Not to say that the Falcons didn't deserve to win or anything. They made the plays to win the game, but like that game went you know, there was a low-scoring run. You know, the Bears could run the ball. Their defense could assert the will. That was exactly the game that the Bears wanted it to be. Um, and, and and so, like, it's the same thing with the Bills game, and that's one of the reasons why I was a lot more critical of the Falcons' defense because they didn't really stop the Bills from doing any of the things offensively that the Bills wanted to do. They wanted Tyrod to run around, make a couple of plays, take some shots down the field, not be forced to throw. to go into a throw-first offense. They wanted to run the football. They were able to run the football like a million times in that game and and were effective doing it, Um, despite, you know, people saying, oh, they only held them to like 3.8 yards per carry. But again, yards per carry is a bad way of measuring efficiency. It's more, you know, know, if you really want to talk about running stats, the most important running stat, at least when we talk about correlation to winning and losing, is rushing attempts. So anytime you get over 30 attempts as a run, you, you run the ball very effectively. Um, and, and obviously, I think the, the Dolphins game goes the same way. The Dolphins were able to run the ball effectively early in the game. They were able, you know, the, the running game became a little bit less effective in the second half, but they were able to healthy have a healthy mix of run and sort of the dink and dunk passing that basically Jay Cutler and their offense has become this year. And so, again, it wasn't anything that the Falcons were really doing to sort of really offset their plans. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why when, when we do these crossover pods, I've had people sort of be critical and, and complain a little bit that, you know, myself and whoever I'm doing the host, 
um, co-hosting that show with spend too much time talking about the other team. But one of the reasons why we do that, or at least I do that, is because I want people to understand what the other team is trying to do. And when you're watching the games live and you're like, oh, yeah, this is the thing that Aaron talked about the other team trying to do, and they're doing it, essentially that means the Falcons are losing the game in that instance. Now, you know, the scoreboard may reflect differently in that instance, but that's what we're talking about. You know, the goal is to stop the other team from doing X, Y, and Z. And I don't think the Falcons are really doing a good job of that this year. You know, instead, you want to see the Falcons impose their will and basically make the team do A, B, and C. And I think, you know, that's the main reason why these these games are so close. And it seems like the Falcons are, you know, in these games and winning them by the skin of their teeth. And I think that's the thing that Shanahan did particularly well. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why some of us um, have been so praising of Shanahan because he was basically dictating to the terms of the game to the opponent. And and as we knew, as we talked about quite a bit, that also had trickled down to the defense, the defensive performance because the Falcons were able to make teams be one-dimensional and so basically play to the strengths of their defense, which is more of a pass-first defense. Um, and I think that element is really gone under Sark, and we haven't really seen that outside of the, the Packer game. And if you know if you're gonna if you're gonna go after Stark and criticize Stark, I think that's the one thing that you would you should or or would choose to hang your hat on. But you know, I I think my personal opinion on that, you know, judging from at this point in time, maybe you know five weeks from now, we might have a, I might have a very different opinion. But I think that's the difference between you know having nine years of NFL play calling experience and thirteen years of NFL coaching experience versus Sark, who's has zero years of NFL play calling experience and one year of NFL coaching experience. I think being able to basically say, okay, this is what, you know, the Broncos do. We're going to attack them in this way. This is what the Seahawks do. We're going to attack them in this way. I, you know, I don't think Stark is going to have that sort of thing. And, you know, without him being basically a, a, a coaching prodigy to a certain extent, I like, I don't think you can just watch film and figure all that stuff out. I think, you know, there's some experiential stuff. There's some learning curve stuff that from nine years of, of the trials and tribulations and the ups and downs of coaching in the NFL becomes sort of second nature to you as opposed to the case of Sark, who's still trying to figure those things out. Um, I also think, you know, the Falcons may or may not be hurt by the fact that they lost most of their offensive coaching staff. Losing quarterback coach, running back coach, making changes with the offensive assistants, all those guys that had two, three, or more years of experience working with Shanahan, knowing his system, knowing the ins and outs of the system, knowing how to coach those things and how to be successful in that system, I think probably helped the team. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, you know, it probably only accounted for, like, 12% of their success, but, you know, that that's 12% that's gone now. Um, and, you know, you now you have a coaching staff that's sort of a cut-and-paste sort of group that – they're not, you know, they're not coming in like this is how Sark wants things run and whatnot. So I think they're losing a little bit. of that. And, uh, you know, I don't think this is going to be an easy fix. I don't think this is going to be a situation where the Falcons, you know, they just need to start doing this and everything's going to start cooking in place. I think this is going to be a work in progress. And I think it may take a year or two, if not more, for all these things to start clicking. Um, and so for that, I, I think, you know, I don't think we're like, a couple of tweaks away from getting back to scoring 34 points a game. And that's one of the reasons why I feel like some of the criticism for Sark is a little bit overbearing a little bit 
because I, I, I think there's like this expectation that he can just, you know, dig deep and, and figure it all out and we can just get right back to doing what we were going to do. And, and, you know, I know it, it, it means being a little bit patient there. And I know for a fan base that like 98% of the fans expect this team to make it back to the Super Bowl and win the Super Bowl, asking them to be patient is kind of a, it's, you know, again, it's a kind of a ridiculous notion. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, you know, case Sarah, Sarah, what will be, will be. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll go on this journey together and figure out what, you know, if this team is legit good as the season wears on, or if they continue to be this more up and down middling team. And, uh, you know, I don't have an answer to you guys. You know, I'm, I'm bad at predicting things cause I get th- so many things wrong. So we'll see how it goes. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. So I don't have an answer to, for you, to be honest with you. It, it, it could be one or both. All right, Hilton Sharp's question. Offensive line. Was that the main weak point? Was everyone ter- horrible? Even saw Mac losing his block. I don't think the offensive line was bad. I just think they had a few too many breakdowns. And unfortunately, the majority of them came on early downs in the second half. And it forced the Falcons to get behind schedule. And their offense isn't really designed to win in those situations. But, you know, then again, very few offenses are. Um, You know, I think one of the benefits of having an improvisational quarterback like an Aaron Rodgers or a Russell Wilson means that sometimes when you get into those third and 13s, your quarterback can sort of pull something out of his butt. And that's not really going to be Matt Ryan's game. And I think also when you have a first-year offensive coordinator, I don't think it's really it's really. Um, realistic to expect him to to come up with the perfect play call in third and 13 to get the team out of the hole. Um, but, you know, then again, I don't think Shanahan was doing that last year either. It's just I think the, the thing that Shanahan was good at, like they weren't particularly great in third and longs last year, but one of the things that they were, they, they rarely had it. I think they were dead last in the league in, in facing those third and 11-plus towards sort of plays, um, but they only converted them at an average rate, if I, if I recall the stats correctly. But, like, yeah, I think the the thing that Shanahan was good at doing was avoiding those situations. Like, they were not good on third downs. Like, I mean, they, they converted a high percentage of them. But, like, they gave up, the, the like, the six most sacks on third downs last year. And so I think that's, again, a testament to Shanahan's ability to dictate things. You know, I also think part of it is not the offensive line was bad. It's just the Dolphins have a good defensive line. You know, that, that's one of those things that I was talking about on last week's preview shows. Like, they have a legit defensive line. William Hayes is playing great. Sue, this is in Dominican Sue. I think everybody knows who, who Cameron Wake is. Charles Harris has played well. Andre Branch has played well. Jordan Phillips played outstanding. I didn't even realize he was going to even come back this week. And, you know, he made a lot of plays, particularly in the second half of the game, and really was disruptive. And he was one of the guys that was giving Max some of those problems. Um, uh, Hilton's next question is defense. I listened to the Falcons' weekly Facebook Live and DQ said our biggest issue with the run game was gap discipline. Who was the main offender? Sounds like we have too many Mavericks trying to do more than they are asked. Well, you know, as as I as you can probably guess, you know, my my personal opinion, the main offender was Deion Jones. But hey, and Hilton's last comment is in closing, the offense is bland in my opinion, but no reason defense should surrender twenty points. They closed out, they closed drives out and have them back right and hand them right back with penalties. Shake my damn head. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the discipline was a, it was a major issue, it was particularly on that one drive with the penalties and whatnot, and, and they have to be better. They, it was a chippy game. 
You know, it just seemed like the portions of the game, the defense was sort of going through the motions a little bit. You saw guys on the back end just sort of like standing around, not trying to get off blocks, not trying to rally to the ball and, and hoping that somebody else would, would make the tackle. And, and obviously, you know, the fighting and the chippiness and the penalties and, you know, they were just out of their element. They weren't, they weren't ready to go. But hopefully, you know, this week that won't be an issue. JTick at JTickYT, he asks, why are we not feeding Julio? Uh, you know, as I said earlier, I don't think the issue is not feeding Julio. I think the issue is how you use Julio. Um, you know, we talked about this quite a bit in, in 2015, but, like, when you use Julio as a possession receiver, that's basically a win for the defense. They'll take a 7-yard or an 8-yard completion from Julio Jones. They're more afraid of the 28-yard or the 27-yard play from Julio Jones. Um, and then what you ch- what you saw change last year was the Falcons were able to use Julio as a vertical threat. And I think, you know, what Shanahan did well was he knew exactly how to fit all the other pieces into the offense and, and sort of, you know, he knew how to use Gabriel because he had worked with Gabriel in Cleveland. He knew how to use Aldrick Robinson from their time in, in, in Washington. He knew how to use Sanu um, and basically used him in the same ways that he used Leonard Hankerson in 2015. Um, and, you know, he also knew what he wanted to do with Tammy and Hooper and Coleman and Toy Lolo and Freeman and Hardy. And, and so it was a guy that understood what he had, knew how to use those pieces, and was able to go out there and implement that. And I think that's part of the learning process and the, the um, ingratiation. Is, is that a good word? I don't know. How, you know, the, the learning curve that Sark is going to have to experience. And it's similar to sort of what Shanahan had to deal with in 2015 with, with a couple of his own pieces, a couple of pieces that he brought in, but for the most part having to win, having to figure things out with other teams' pieces. And obviously that issue is not as, you know, that is an issue, but it's not as dire an issue because obviously we know that this 2017 weapons are way more talented than those 2015 weapons you know there's no there's no Leonard Hankerson there's no sort of last legs of Roddy White you know you know Jacob Tammy was solid but you know I think Hooper is a much more talented player so it's it's less of an excuse but it is it doesn't mean that there there isn't a process to 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 learning it so um yeah, that's that's what I would say. I don't think they need to feed Julio. I think they need to find better ways of using Julio. And, you know, someone else has a similar question later on, so I'll elaborate further on that. But let's move to the next question. From Andy at Falcons. Andy, is Poe's reduced weight helping him be more disruptive or making it more difficult to clog running lanes? Um, I don't think Poe has been all that disruptive. So I don't know if the reduced at least as a run defender, let me say that. Um, I don't think it's really helped him there. And I think the problem that Poe is dealing with is because of his lack of disruptiveness and the fact that he's not a guy that's going to be moving all that much, sometimes it's kind of easy to sort of wall him off. Um, You know, he's not necessarily getting pushed around, but it's just like you just shift your, flip your hips a little bit this way. And and because he's not going to, he's more of a space eater than than a disruptor, you can sort of pivot the run around him to a certain extent. And um, other times you, you do see him sort of use his bulk to prevent the, the guard or the center to, to get that push that they needed on some of those man blocks. But I think part of the problem is like if you run zone against us, it's a little bit harder for Poe to make an impact there. 
Um, I think as a pass rusher, he's he's done fine. I think when when he like when it's very clearly a passing down and he's he knows it's coming, then you you sort of see him show that a little bit more burst. And I think in those ways, the reduction in weight have been helpful for him. Um, yeah. Noel Rodriguez, good friend of mine, at Vota Noel twenty twenty, he asked, uh, "Can we get more? Can we get Julio more involved?" And Hooper, and also, can we get the defense to play 100% the whole game? Um, yeah, you know, again, it's how it's it's how you use Julio. Um, he, you know, Julio's the sun. He he contains all the gravity in the solar system, or 98% of it, if you want to be scientifically accurate. Um, and I think the thing that you want to, the issue with Julio is you got to get him involved on certain routes and route combinations using stack concepts, open things up for him and up for other players. I think we need to see more of that. I didn't see nearly as much of that against Miami. There was a lot of more ISO routes. You know, Julio lining up on one side of the field and sort of just, you know, pulling a safety away from him. But the Falcons, what the Falcons were doing on the opposite side of the field um, wasn't necessarily doing anything to take advantage of that safety being pulled in coverage. And then when they would line him up on one side of the field, you know, in those three-by-one sets and, and trips and whatnot, it was just mainly just screens and whatnot to Julio as opposed to anything else. So, you know, I think if you can create for Julio, I, I think that's a fair criticism. But I, I, I do think it's not necessarily – we just got to find ways of getting Julio the ball. I think you got to find ways of maximizing Julio's skill set by getting him the ball more down the field, I think by using his skill set to create opportunities underneath for other players as well as over the top for other players, um, by pulling those safeties away in deep coverage, um, you know, and yeah, and, and I think w- once you start doing that, then teams start to worry more about okay, these other guys are killing us. You know, you want teams to play away. Where like they did last year, where they're worried about, like they're like, we'll we will we're not going to let Julio beat us, and we'll let these other guys beat us. We'll let the Muhammad Sus, Sanus, and the Aldrich Robinsons of the world beat us. And then you want to see the offense basically exploit that, like they were able to do that very well last year. They're not really doing that this year. And then once they get into a situation where it's like, oh, these guys are killing us. We can't let the Muhammad's then it opens creates opportunities for Julio because then they forget, oh yeah, there's this guy named Quinn Torres out there that's is you know, is is a centaur, as as my good friend Robert Mays might say. As for Hooper, um, I don't think there's anything specific to him that I would look to be like they need to get him more involved specifically, that I wouldn't necessarily say about the other receivers. You know, as for the defense, um, I think, you know, as I said earlier, I think Part of the problem with the defense is they're sort of built to play with a lead. They're, they're more of a pass first. They're an undersized, fast, coverage-oriented defense, and they're more built to play with a lead. And, you know, they've been playing with leads in some of these games. They just haven't been able to stop guys. And so I think part of that has sort of contributed to some of our struggles, particularly in the Buffalo game, I think, with their run defense. And, you know, I don't know what was going on in the Miami game. They just, I don't know, they just seem to run out of juice, um, whatever that is. Uh, Smorgasbord9, at Smorgasbord9 on Twitter, asks, I like the way Hall attacked the ball, that rhymes, any chance we get 
any chance we see him get more targets? I hope so. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big Marvin Hall fan. I, I think he's quick. He's explosive. He's got good hands. I know people made a big deal about that drop in the preseason. But I think when you talk about the subtleties and details and nuances of playing the wide receiver position, you know, with ability to separate, to beat press coverage, route, route running, I think he has all the tools that you want that you can imagine a scenario, whether, you know, I don't know if it's going to be this year, but in the long term, you could see him developing into a Tabriel, Taylor Gabriel type of sort of complementary weapon that can has the potential to, to get those plays down the field. You can run screens with him and, and sort of be a, a, a nice piece for the Falcons in the future. So, you know, if we're, if we're playing the, the 2018 game that, you know, I don't love playing, but in, in a reality where the Falcons choose not to re-sign Taylor Gabriel, I don't necessarily know if that's a bad decision because I, I think a guy like Marvin Hall potentially, not maybe not necessarily in 2018, but potentially could sort of fill those shoes uh, to a certain extent. Troy Green at Uncle Troy G asks, on your All-22, which 2D lineman had a great to good game that the numbers may not show up? Uh, I think Derek Shelby played well. I think he, he did a good job against the run. He didn't make any splash plays, so... You know, you're not you're not going to see many people playing him, but I thought he did. He was disciplined and, and stout, um, you know, with, with his run fits. I know a lot of people were critical of Joe Volano because there was a couple of big gashing plays where the Dolphins were able to gash us, and, and it seemed like Jay Ajayi was just running right past Joe Volano. But, like, I don't fault, you know, I think a lot of those plays, it was more Deion Jones being completely out of position. But, um, you know, I, I thought Joe Volano did a good job, you know, but... Then again, I also sort of, I'm also a little bit biased on this because I tend to judge backups as backups. I don't necessarily hold, you know, I I, I put, I hold starters to a very high standard, as you know. Um, I don't hold backups to that same standard. You know, it, it was funny because like, you know, I'm known as a Paul Warlow hater, but when he was a backup last year, I, you, you can go back and listen to most of the podcast. I didn't criticize Paul Warlow all that much last year because at that point in time, he was a backup and I was judging him as a backup, you know as opposed to prior to that when he was a starter. Um, it's weird. It's a bias. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that makes me objective in any way. But, um, you know, similar to Shelby, I would say if I was going to throw another name out there, I thought Brooks Reed did a good job. I thought Tiny Tupo only played seven snaps, but I thought he did a good job on like three or four of them and, and looked disruptive on, on those plays. So I think the D-line, you know, initially I thought watching them in the game, I was like, oh, yeah, the D-line's struggling. But I think in the interior, I don't think that, I don't have really any problems with the interior play. You know, there was a couple of snaps here or there that I, I wish Poe had done a better job. But again, that's me holding the starters to a higher standard than I normally would. I thought Jarrett was fine. You know, if I had any issues with the D-line, it was basically Claiborne, Tack, and, and Vic Beasley really not doing a whole lot as pass rushers. Um, yeah. So if I had any beef with that, that would be those guys. I would have a, a lot harder... I would say much harsher things about those guys. And even then, I don't think it was all their fault. I, I think, you know, there were other reasons for that. But, um, yeah, most of my ire is for the linebacker core. But that's a conversation for another day. Uh, Troy's next question is, what wide receiver, tight end, or running back got the most separation on a per-play basis? Well, this is a tough question because I don't necessarily know if our guys were really getting a ton of separation. I think most of the time guys got open, it was them working against zone coverage. And that may be inherently a problem right there. And that, you know, that also sort of speaks to what I said after the week one game when we talked about the, 
you know, the similarities between the Sark offense and the Cutter offense. And one of the issues I had with the Cutter offense was it was heavily reliant on guys beating man coverage in order for those windows to open up. And when Julio and Tony G and, and uh, Roddy were all healthy and playing at a high level in 2012, that wasn't an issue. But after that, when guys started getting hurt and guys started getting old and couldn't separate like that, in the case of Roddy, and when guys like Tony Gonzalez were retiring, um, that became very problematic for the offense. Um, and, and at times, I think this, this Sark-led offense is a little bit too much like that. And so all that to say, it's hard for me to answer this question, Troy. But I guess if I, had the, if I was forced to pick, I would probably say Gabriel and Hooper and, or maybe Devontae, I guess. They, they seem to do a decent job, I guess. Um, Riley Street asks, so I know Freeman's numbers look good if you just look at them overall, but I felt like other than two big runs, our running game was fairly bottled up. Is is true? Yeah, you know that's credit to Miami's defense. They had, you know, I think Football Outsiders had them a, as a top three run defense heading into the week. They have a great defensive line. They have very disciplined linebackers, unlike the Falcons. Um, you know, I would trade my kidneys to get Kiko Alonso, but no, I'll, I'll let it go. I'm, I'm not going to be that guy. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think, I think some of the dink and dunk that Sark was doing was tr- him trying to supplement the run game. Cause he knew he couldn't just straight up ask this team to, to run downhill and beat this Dolphins front. Um, and so I think some of the quick shorter throws were designed to get the five and six yards that you would want from your running game. But, you could supplement with your passing game. So, and it's part of the reason why I'm not super down on his play calling because I, I kind of understand, it seemed like, at least to me, my interpretation, it seemed like some of the things that he did, particularly like, I, I noticed it on some of the early possessions on like second down, they would get on second and eight and then they would run these routes where Julio would run like a, a, a seven yard curl or whatnot. And I, so I got it. I understood that. Um, it's, but for the most part, the running game only really clicked in the second quarter. It didn't really click in the first or third or fourth. They didn't run a ton in the second in the second half because they didn't have a ton of opportunities. And and by the time they actually had an extended drive, it was already they were in the two minute offense. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, the running game sort of was was slowed down. Uh, Riley's next question: Any thoughts on our lack of pass rush this week? Even with the backup offensive line in the game, did they do anything special to slow it down? No, I, I think you know if, if they did anything special, I think it was part of Cutler's getting rid of the ball quickly. You, you know, he's one of the issues that the Dolphins have had until they faced the Falcons' defense was um, how sort of quick Cutler has been on the trigger when he sniffs even the hint of pressure, and it's led to their offense not being able to generate big plays. It's led to their offense not really being efficient on third downs. That didn't really, obviously, that didn't really hurt them against the Falcons. They weren't a really great. They certainly didn't make a ton of big plays, and they weren't amazing on third downs. But they were able to put together enough good, you know, that one good drive on third downs and start the second half, um, and and sort of really take the pressure off off of um, the the rest of the game. So, you know, I, I think. Speaking to what I said earlier, the pass rush wasn't quite up to par, but I think part of that is is, is one of the reasons why, even though I, I, I'm more critical of the ends than I am of the uh, 
uh, D tackles in this game. Um, I'm not too upset with them because of that. Um, and it seemed like, you know, some of the success they were having offensively, the Miami that is, seemed to be attacking our zones, which again speaks to my beef with the linebackers. Um, and we also, you know, couldn't cover Jarvis Landry at certain points in this game, but that happens. He's good. You know, he's sort of a Wes Welker type of receiver, but, uh, he does that well. He did it well on Sunday, so I can't fault him there. Uh, Riley's next question. I have seen somewhat that Matt Ryan through last week had thrown the third fewest turnover worthy passes of QBs in the NFL. I believe according to PFF. Yet, obviously, he had five picks and now six through week six. Has he actually looked like he's regressed much, or has it been a combination of the change in play calls compensating for the right side of his offensive line, or just a case of poor luck? I think, you know, all of the above, to answer your question, Riley. Um, again, we're, as I said at the top, we're, we're talking about a very small percentage of plays, so don't don't let this be an all-encompassing narrative. Um but, I, you know, I think some of Matt Ryan's issues have stemmed from timing. I don't think timing was the main problem with him on the deep passes against Miami in particular. I think it has been in so many other games. But I, I just think he was making bad throws down the field. Like, he was just throwing balls out of bounds and whatnot. Like, you can't catch passes out of bounds. Like, that's the bottom line. Um, I think most of the timing stuff does stem from the change in play calls, though. And I, at least when you compare it to last year, where he seemed a lot more decisive and sharp and crisp with the timing of some of his throws. It seemed like, you know, he saw the look he wanted. He, he knew what was coming. And so it would be like, you know, they call a, a, a corner route to Taylor Gabriel. And before Taylor Gabriel was coming out of his break, you know, that ball would be on time and waiting for him on that 18 yard throw or, or whatnot. And you're not really seeing that. And I, I don't think that's, you know, I think that you have to talk about sort of the routes and the play calling there. Um, you know, and I think that's you know him not being fully comfortable with what the scheme is asking him to do and, and what he's looking for when he's reading. You know, you're, you're watching plays where he's like dropping back, wait a beat, wait a beat, wait a beat, look, 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 and then deliver. And you, that wasn't you know, obviously over the course of 600 passing plays or 550 passing plays, obviously there are plenty of examples of that happening last year. But you you also had a healthy amount. Of plays where it's like boom, boom, he gets the exact look he wants, and the ball's out, and the Falcons are gashing teams for 16 yards, 18 yards, 22 yards, and whatnot. And that's not really happening this year. Um, I think some of the issues he's also having, he's not really doing a great job resetting his feet. That wasn't as big an issue last year, but I, I do think last year was a little bit of an outlier in that because that that was often an issue early in Matt Ryan's career. Um, where if you could move him off his spot, everything would sort of break down his accuracy and his decision making would dip. That hasn't been as big an issue the last you know three or four years because he's had to learn how to play with uh, offensive lines that often allow defensive lines to move him off the spot, and so he's gotten better at that over the course of his career. So I don't think that's a major major issue, but there have been throws that he's left on the field because he just did not have good footwork or or did not do a good job resetting his feet this year. Um, Riley's next question. Being that you have the fancy PFF info, how often do we blitz? Do you feel like we need to do more of it, more exotic blitzes, more from zone or man? Uh, I have the numbers updated through week five, not week six. Uh, According to PFF, the Falcons have blitzed 20% of the time, which is 29th most in the NFL. 
Uh, they threw a healthy amount of blitzes at the Dolphins, and I think they got burned a couple of times. I remember, like, the, I think the last third down conversion the Dolphins had, it was they hit Jarvis Landry over the middle, and they they blitz pool on that play. Most of the part when the Falcons blitz, they blitz either pool or Campbell, or maybe both. Um, you know, I don't have a strong take on this one, Riley. Um, you know, if they want to blitz more, they can. You know, because they play man coverage, it makes sense that you 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 know because we're good at man coverage, I should say it makes sense that you would be a little bit more aggressive with the blitzing. If they choose not to, fine. You know, if they do choose to, I, I wish that they would be a little bit more exotic or at least do a better job disguising their blitzes because they, they seem to be telegraphed a little bit, you know, particularly with Paul sometimes when he's he's coming off that corner. Um, but, like, it's kind of hard to do in this scheme to a certain extent, at least the way they play it. Like if we sort of embrace more of the three four hybrid elements of the defensive scheme, maybe we could do that. And you know, one of the one of the reasons why the, you know some people like the three four more than the four three is because it's easier to disguise your blitzes and disguise who's coming um, than it is with the traditional four four three, where it's basically oh, unless you're gonna unless you have really athletic defensive linemen, which we do. I mean, we've done it. We've done some zone blitzes this year, um, but it's kind of harder to sort of confuse teams on who's coming and who's not because it's usually going to be the four guys in front and then one of the linebackers. Um, yeah, so I, I don't really have a strong opinion. If they want to blitz more, fine. If they don't, fine. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Riley's uh, last question, and the last question of the episode, is did we play as much man this week as we did through the four, previous four games? Uh, yeah, we played, you know, majority man, but there were did you know, particularly on that 15-play drive, it did seem like they, they resorted to a lot more zone. And I think the sort of narrative that we've heard at various times that, you know, that this team is bad at zone and they need to play more man and they be, need to be more aggressive and, and on defense, I think that, you know, you can make a, a stronger case this week um, about that uh, against this Miami game, at least, at least as it pertains to that specific drive. Um, it's it's tough because I wrote about this a little bit in my takeaways column on Monday. You can check that out on falcfans.com. But you know, maybe some you 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 can make an argument that maybe some of the team's issues at wearing down in games has been because they play so much man coverage and man coverage is more taxing because you're running around, you, you know, more in man than you are in zone. And so maybe maybe that's a reason why they decided to switch to to more zone in the second half and have traditionally done that this year, playing more zone in the third quarter than they do in the early quarters. Um, but like then you run into the problem of we're not good in zone, and that, again, that's mainly due to our linebackers. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a pickle there. So, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Like I would generally side on the, on the side of playing more man because we've consistently been better playing man um, but you know, Barquan Manuel gets paid a lot of money to make these decisions. And so I will happily, um, defer to what, how, what he wants to do. Cause I, I don't know guys, um, you know, unless our linebackers start getting better at, at covering in zone, then I, I can't see why you would want to play more zone. So yeah, I guess that's just something we're gonna to have to deal with. That's that's a that's a flaw we're just gonna to to deal with for the rest of the season until our pass rush starts playing better. Um, and I'll, I'll leave you with this: 
Uh, you know, hot take. Here's the hot take. We'll we'll save the hot take for the very end of the show. Um, you know, I'm I've been hard on our linebackers, but you know, I, I I will say something positive at the same time of saying something very negative. Um, I I think Duke Riley's showing some upside. I like his upside. I think Duke Riley, from a reading and recognition standpoint, is light years ahead of where Deion Jones and, and Devondre Campbell were at this point last year. Um, I, I just think, you know, Duke's not necessarily making plays, but I think once the game starts to slow down for him from a reading and recognition standpoint, from a, an attacking blocks, being able to shed blocks, he needs to get stronger. You know, he needs to be a better tackler, all those sort of things. But if, if you know, if everything comes together for Duke Riley, like I have no, you know, here's the hot take, but I have no problem saying that, you know, in a year or two, he's going to be the best linebacker on this team. And he's going to be far and away a better linebacker than, what Deion Jones and Devondre Campbell are at this point. And again, here's the negativity, but like those two guys, man, like they're vastly overrated in my opinion. Like they are the Vic Beasley of this year, which is a player that is good, two players that are good, but the perception of how good they are, I think is, is grossly, grossly overrated. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated with those guys because I, I don't think they've, particularly played well the last two weeks um you know Campbell less to a lesser extent um he's still having the issues with his recognition and in the sort of being out of position from time to time it's not a glaring issue because again he's spending so much time at strong side and, and those issues are somewhat mitigated playing on the outside uh, rather than the weak side linebacker um but it is one of those things where it's like those two guys have to be better, in my opinion. And it's, you know, for most of this offseason, I was saying things like, you know, our, our defense will be as good as our pass rush will go, and I still believe that. But, like, I don't think this defense can really make that leap into the top 10, top 12, or wherever you guys think it could or should be until those guys start being a lot more disciplined and a lot more consistent snap to snap. And if they can be, then, you know, this defense is going to be amazing. Um. You know, I really do think that uh, once the pass rush gets on track and once those guys start performing better, but, you know, if, if it, it's it's tough. It's tough to me. I just, you know, I, I don't want to, I know people are going to disagree, but like, you know, I just see so many people like earlier today or yesterday or whenever it was, I can't remember when it was, like I tweeted something like, I think Keanu Neal is the best player in defense. And and part of that is Trufant's the best player in defense, but I'm I'm mad because he gave up that Jarvis Landry touchdown, or at least I, I believe he was at fault on that Jarvis Landry touchdown because we were playing man coverage and he didn't cover his man. Um, but you know, so Trufant's really won, but because he gave up that touchdown, he's now knocked it two. He'll be back at one next week. Um, and like you know, a lot of people mentioned like, what do you think of Deion Jones? Is is he? And, and like, or Deion Jones is number two, or Devondre Campbell's number two. I'm like, no, they're not number two. They're not like Alfred, Jarrett, Neil, um, Grady. Right, I just said that. Trufant, I'm sorry. Um, like Brooks Reed, like all those guys, in, in my opinion, are, are playing better. Rico are playing better football than, than those two. I think Jones and Campbell, they make splash plays and it misleads people again it's, it's the same thing with Vic Beasley Vic Beasley would get like two sacks and, and people were like oh Vic Beasley is amazing and then he would disappear for 30 snaps 
um, which is fine. You know, pass that happens with pass rushers, but linebackers, you, you can't be, you know, and it's not necessarily Campbell to the same degree, but like with Jones, it's like you, you just can't be this massive liability when I'm watching you get washed out of the run nine yards downfield, you know, and then they're running eight, you know, Jay Ajayi is running for eight yards up the middle. And because you're, you don't want to take on this offensive line, you got to take on that dude. And like, that's why I will, you know, I will defend Duke Riley, even if he's missing tackles, I will defend him because he's not afraid to take on a dude. He's not afraid to attack that block and go after an offensive lineman and, and does a much better job at understanding where to put his hands, where to get leverage, and sort of getting leverage against those blocks. And, and we're not seeing that from Deion Jones. I see it from time to time. But again, for every time he does it well, there's like four times when he doesn't do it well. So again, I apologize for the rant, the negativity to, to leave this show on, but it's very frustrating. And like, he'll probably come out and play really well against New England. Like, again, he's got the talent to be a great player, but he's got to be better. I'm tired of watching this team get pushed around in the run game and teams just pounding the ball down our throats because our middle linebacker is basically a strong safety. Um, so we'll see how it goes the rest of the season. We'll see how, what improves and, and what, what, if it does. But uh, um, it's very frustrating to me. And I, like, I'm not going to pretend I'm objective on this. I very much have a strong bias on this. So, um, you know, it is what it is. But <sighs> if I sound frustrated, I am frustrated. Just watching the tape today of the linebackers just getting wrecked and watching last week's tape of the linebackers just getting wrecked it's just like, hey, stop getting wrecked, guys. I love our secondary. Our defensive line is coming along. It's not quite there, but it's making strides. But this linebacker core is is like the anchor that's driving, that's holding back this defense, in my opinion, because they're so bad at zone coverage and we can't play zone. And they're so bad and they're so inconsistent at stopping the run. Um, so we'll see how the rest of the season goes. All right, that's it, guys. That's all the questions we have. Uh, sorry for going on that rant at the end, but I saved it for the end. So hour-long episode. I deserve a negativity rant. You know, I, I, I put in my time. Um, as I said at the top of the show, you know how to, to get your questions in. Tomorrow we will be doing a crossover pod with Locked On Patriots host Mark Schofield. We had Mark on earlier this offseason talking quarterbacks in the pre-draft process because you know, everybody talks quarterbacks. I know we're going to talk to Mark later this offseason with this upcoming draft, even though the Falcons aren't in the market for a quarterback, because Mark, you know, that's the that's what drives the draft, uh, the quarterback. So we'll be talking Sam Darnold and 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 Josh Rosen and, and Lamar Jackson and whoever else come April with Mark Schofield. But we will be talking Patriots with Mark Schofield in tomorrow's episode, so stay tuned to that. As usual, check out the Pro Football Focus Edge. Give that rating and review on iTunes. Get at me on, on Twitter, Locked on Falcons, Falcons. Facebook, Locked on Falcons. Email, Locked on Falcons at mail.com. Audioboom.com, Falcons.com. Leave a comment there. And uh, that's it, guys. Hopefully the Falcons will pick it up. This is a big week for a lot of fans. It's a big week for apparently a lot of players because, you know, so many postgame interviews seem to mention the Super Bowl and rematch and revenge and whatnot. So I hope this team is dialed in, you know, if, if maybe that maybe, you know, the whole notion of a trap game and they were looking ahead, maybe that is true based off the way they performed. Um, so they got no excuse, right? <laughs> you know, 
urgency or in, in want to is not going to be an excuse this week. So it's just going to come down to execution, right? Um, so we'll see how the team does. You know, for me, this is any old game. Like, I don't care that it's against the Patriots. I want them to win the game because they need to win the game. Um, if it was against the Patriots or the Browns, it, it's the same to me. So that's my opinion on that. But uh, I, I know a lot of people have been looking forward to this game for the last, what, eight, eight nine months. So um, we'll see how it goes. But uh, hopefully they come away and, and sort of can, you know, I don't think it's going to exercise any demons if they win this week. You know, it exercises the demons of getting back this team back on the on the playoff track, not necessarily – you know, it, it ain't not like the Patriots going to give up their Super Bowl rings uh, if the Falcons win this week. But it will certainly, you know, from some perspective, be a, a solid win. So that's it, guys. Long, Extra long all 22 review, but a lot of things to talk about this week. A lot of thoughts on the offense and, and what it's not doing. A lot of thoughts on the, on the defense and what the linebackers aren't doing. I'm sure other people will have differing opinions on that. But uh, hope you guys enjoyed this one. Hopefully it was an informative podcast for you guys. And uh, we will be back tomorrow. Stay locked on in brotherhood. Rise up. You are Locked On Falcons, your daily Atlanta Falcons podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.